0: Hi, podcast listeners. This is Billy. This episode is a repost of one from about a year ago. I have an article coming out in Grid Magazine in a few days, an op-ed arguing that we should keep cats inside, even if that means we end up having to put down some of them that can't be reformed. Ultimately, it saves animal lives and helps keep nature accessible for us and our neighbors. I figured some readers might want to check out this episode, of course, please disregard the event information in the episode. Pete Mara spoke at the Academy of Natural Sciences last year. Tony and I are hard at work on a literature review episode about outdoor cats and wildlife, one in which we'll dive into the studies about outdoor cats and the evidence for and against TNR. Please stay tuned.
1: you know Cats are they're, they're pests or pets, depending upon the situations humans put them in. There's, there's no question about that. They are a domesticated species, and we have to remember that. So when we put them in these situations and they are having an impact on biodiversity, we're leaving them there and we're allowing it. And that's, that's on us.
0: You are listening to Urban Wildlife Podcast. Welcome back to a special episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Yes, indeed. So we're going to talk about Cat Wars. This is a book. Um, a topic. But the book is by Peter Mara and Chris Santella. So the occasion for this podcast episode about Cat Wars is that Pete Mara is going to be talking at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia of Drexel University on Thursday, this Thursday, February 23rd at 6.30 p.m. Um, We want everyone listening to this, if you're in the Philadelphia area, to go register first and then go to the talk he is the, he's written some, he's published articles on this. He and his co-author wrote the book, Cat Wars, which I've been reading um, and I've been finding. This mix of depressing and energizing. You know, on the podcast, we've talked more than once on different episodes about the importance of keeping cats indoors. You know, and, and get our, our our all our cats on the table here. I myself am allergic to cats. I don't have anything really against them aside from my allergy. I've lived with cats. I've had to comfort partner while we had to you know, put down cats because they had gotten really old and sick. I know how they can be part of a family, I'm part of a household, um, and no one knows it better than Tony right here.
2: I got my lovely Lola.
0: Lola, and Tony looks like this big burly. He is a big burly dude. He can look kind of intimidating if you don't know him very well before you know he's a cuddly bear of a man. But when you see him with Lola, you know he's a cuddly man. Because this fuzzy little geriatric cat, <laughs> like, yeah. like hops up on his lap. <laughs> she's, she's
2: seriously like a living teddy bear. Like she wants to be carried around. I come home and she's like, and you just pick her up, and she, and she begs to be picked up, and you just like carry her around with you, and she just wants to be in your lap the whole time. She's
0: and Tony's in a true, I think a true sense, of cat person. I mean, like when your friend, when you know Mike McGraw done the podcast, you thought he could use a cat. What happened?
2: A trash pick one. There you go. He
0: rescued a cat. Yeah, took it off the street. And uh and now it lives with Mike McGraw and his his, his pet cat. What's the cat's name? Do you know Walter. Walter, there you go. Because uh she's in the, she's named Walter.
2: Because Mike and I are both kinda like a combination of, oh, like, this a
0: Lebowski reference. of the
2: dude and Big Lebowski, but <laughs> we're both kinda a lot like Walter.
0: Uh so my point is that we are not Cat haters. Arguably, Tony is a cat person who loves cats, rescues cats, gives cats to his friends, but keeps the damn cats indoors. And so this has been a theme earlier in other episodes when we were talking about Cat Tracker pops up here and there. um, The importance of keeping cats out of the outdoors. The basic concepts are that cats, even though they might be well fed, are still impulsive predators. They love to hunt and kill things. Tony, tell us about Lola's hunting activities. Yeah,
2: Lola is like, she's just she's tiny. She weighs only a couple of pounds. She's mostly hair. And she's like, well, she was really shy until I started feeding her people food. And now she just wants to hang out with everybody because it's just them who... <laughs> so it's successful. But she used to be like really meek and shy. But she's an unbelievable mouser. And I wake up at like 4 in the morning to her doing like the mouse song. that like, meow, meow. It's like this... this meowing like song like meowing that you only hear when they have a prey item and she wakes me up like with a bloody mouse <laughs> like she's old she's like 13 so I came home one day and it was like bloody puke and I'm like oh no my, my poor Lola's like puking blood she's gonna die and it was like I gotta clean it up and it was like a, a mouse he puked up a mouse he killed she's brutal and this is what kills me about these cat fanatics that they have like this whole like it's like the the Koch brothers with the like Heartland Institute, where they have this, like, misinformation factory. They have these, like, sites, like, Alley Cat Allies and, and these mantras they always say. They're like, a fed cat doesn't hunt. And I'm like, wait, I've, my cat literally has a giant ball of food. It, 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 she's so little, I just leave it out for her. She can eat as much as she wants. She, and I give her treats and people food, whatever. And she slaughters mice. Everybody's, you know, every, you get cats to be mousers and you still feed
0: your cat. Right, so like yeah, Gigi's got Gigi had cats, um, and you know she had some chunky cats that we didn't have mice, but they would hammer the house centipedes. They'd hammer the cockroaches. So like this
2: notion that a fed cat doesn't hunt. In fact, it's the opposite, where they're subsidized predators. Exactly, where an a predator that's depends on prey items for sustenance generally doesn't kill much more than it can eat in a certain amount of time. Because it's just gonna
0: waste calories catching more things. Like, like, you know, like, and also its population is going to be restricted by the availability of prey, so if it eats the prey down below a certain level of availability, it they'll start starving. And so, yeah, there's an
2: equilibrium and yeah. so but if your cat if a cat is being let out, a house cat is being let out, or you have a feral cat colony and you're feeding the cats, then they're out then they're subsidized so they can kill more. Right. Also, feral cat colonies, we'll hear about this, it actually attracts people to dump cats,
0: right? Right. If everybody knows that's where they take care of those cats, um, and you can't find anywhere else to take your cat, because all the shelters have gone no-kill, which is its own kind of problem we touch on, or Pete Talks touches on in this interview, then you're like, okay, well, at least behind the Walmart on um, Washington Avenue, like people yeah. are feeding the cats. I'll dump, I'll dump Fluffy over there. And... You promote interactions with these
2: domesticated animals with wildlife because when you leave food out for a cat, you don't just feed cats. You feed foxes, skunks, raccoons, possums. And then they interact with the cats, you know, either directly or, you know, their saliva is exchanged at the bowl. Cats can get rabies. They can give more. Cats do get rabies. They do get rabies. Yeah. They give. They can give mange and uh, toxoplasmosis to these other animals. Yeah. And these animals get accustomed to being fed, right? So, so yeah. you're
0: subsidizing wild predators as well as subsidizing cats, and you just have this horrible mix of things that really sets up a bad situation for um, your native critters. Your native. I mean, I think we're going to hear a lot about birds because they tend to be the bigger conservation focus, rightly so, but the mammal figures are way higher than the birds. And so that's like, it isn't just like, people are real great, we get rid of mice. No, there's a lot of like wild mammals that we don't notice in, I'll call them urban wild areas. We look at the species list for, let's say the Wissahickon. And you got everything from like,
2: you got weasels in there, right? Well, Um, I've never seen one, but yes, they should be there. You got
0: weasels, you got shrews, you've got um, native rodent species, voles, mice. You've got star-nosed moles in the Wissahickon. Um, you got some really interesting mammals, and all of these are i mean maybe the moles are more underground, but these are still a lot of interesting native wild mammals that are cat target food and so herps you have lots of herps, you have snakes, you have frogs, you have lizards, and then what's mostly the conservation focus and what gets our blood boiling is when we see the cat colonies being maintained in important stopover areas for birds um so that it isn't even just our wildlife. You know, we're talking about the wildlife for Canada and Central America. And for instance, that's like, getting taken out by our little ecological traps that we were setting up with these cat colonies.
2: Kirtland's warblers are actually doing better now, but there is this warbler that, I mean, there's other species that are on decline, but there's this, there's this dangerous warbler that breeds in the upper Midwest. At one point, it was only breeding in the, in the, the northern portion of the lower peninsula of Michigan and wintering in the Bahamas. And it was a really low population, and so think about that. Like they don't come through Philly, but they come through. Certainly, they, they have a
0: the Fall River corridor is migration, follow, right? yeah.
2: And yeah. so they know this. You know, they make landfall somewhere in Florida, maybe. So you know, you have feral cats in like you know the megalopolis of Florida or anywhere between there and you know, you know, of course like Toledo because they know they go through that area, and Chicago probably. You know, these, these, and that's just one example. You know, this species that could like get eaten. I can't, you
0: know. The one thing we didn't cover a whole lot with this interview, um, actually, let's listen to the interview now, and then I want to talk about this last part. So here's Pete Mara. I'm talking with me and Tony about um, his book Cat Wars and the conservation problem of outdoor cats and what we can hopefully do to
1: solve the problem. My name is Pete Mara, and I am a scientist.
3: i got to be really transparent. This is all, we're only doing this because... I need to talk to you and take notes so I can win Facebook debates about feral cats.
1: Perfect. Okay. <laughs> fine. There can be ulterior motives here. I'm cool with that. So I wrote the book because I don't think most people recognize how significant of an issue it is uh, that we have so many free-roaming cats around the U.S., Canada, and actually globally. Uh, it is a tremendous problem, and I wanted to write the book uh, in a way that most people would enjoy reading, uh, but at the same time, see how, how significant this is for wildlife, for human health, and for the cats themselves. In terms of biodiversity, in the United States, we have calculated that cats probably kill somewhere in the range of 1.3 to 4 billion birds per year. When you compare that to other sources of direct anthropogenic mortality, no, nothing else even comes close. Uh, it collisions with buildings... Which was at one time thought to be the primary killer of birds comes in a far second at about 599 million. Uh, beyond that, the others are almost trivial, uh, but they're important relative to cats. That, that information, that in- evidence that, you know, w- when we pull together all the different sources of, of information globally and we're able to build that, those models and really understand what the mortality was, <clears throat> that put up enormous red flags because That's on the heels of already knowing that cats have contributed, if not caused, the extinction of 63 species around the world, reptiles, mammals, and birds. Those are primarily on on islands, but not just on islands. So when you think about the overall impact that cats have had and are having, it it would be completely irresponsible for us not to take this much more seriously. They are the, the second greatest cause of species extinctions on the planet, and that's after rodents. Um, that's a significant issue, and, and most people just don't don't can't appreciate that. They don't understand these issues, and so the sort of the purpose of reading, writing the book was to bring all that to bear.
4: The numbers are shocking, and you're, you sort of say, I can't quite believe that. Really, um, how do you get to the the aggregate numbers of what cats kill?
1: So it's actually it's quite simple actually, and I would also say that we weren't the first people to estimate this at uh, uh, over a billion. There have been other folks that have come up with those estimates, but they've been kind of uh, uh, swept under the carpet. A rich Doll cup came up with an estimate that didn't even include unowned feral cats, and came up with an estimate over a billion. Um, so basically, what you do is you calculate how many birds are typically killed by owned cats. And then by unowned cats, you adjust it based upon the number that they actually bring in. And so you have to you know, really kind of figure out how many they're actually killing. Most of those estimations are based upon the number of birds, for example, that a cat will bring home to its owner. And we know that a cat only returns about a third of what they kill. Um, the other things they either eat or they kill them and they leave them. And that's been demonstrated with some really convincing studies using cat cams and, and actually studies where they actually followed the cats around almost 24-7. And then basically you need to know and estimate the number of cats. And, you know, we think that there are somewhere around 80 million owned cats out there and roughly 50 to 60 percent of those somewhere around that range go outside that, and are allowed to hunt. And then there are somewhere between 60 and 100 million unowned cats out there, Um, and we set because we were being very conservative, we set our estimates at somewhere between 30 million and 80 million. So even when you consider the lowest parts of our model, lowest um, estimates from our our model, like the lowest number of birds that a a cat will kill, or lowest number of mammals that a cat will kill, and the lowest number of cats that are on the landscape, that generates a 1.3 billion estimate. Now, one of the criticisms that we've been getting from the cat advocates, um, people that don't really understand bird populations, is that, well, the estimates are that there's only 10 billion birds out there, and you're telling us that it could be 4 billion that are killed by cats? That's crazy. Well, yeah, that's because there aren't just 10 billion birds out there. The 10 billion estimate of birds, and it, it varies depending upon where you look to get that estimate, You know, counting the number of birds across the landscape is not a trivial thing to do. And I would argue that we really don't know how many birds that are out there. But the important thing to know is that cats are preying on birds throughout the year. The estimate of say 10 billion that's put out by some organizations, that is just in the, the estimate of breeding, it's a breeding census. So how many males and females are in the population in May or June? After they reproduce, that number can double, triple, or quadruple because those birds raise young. They could have two, three broods in a year, and there could be as many as 40 or 45 billion in the population. So you can't just say there's 10 billion birds out there. That number changes throughout the annual cycle as birds reproduce and recruit individual animals into the population, and those numbers change as you go from June to July to August, et cetera, cetera, back down to June again the next year. Cats are preying throughout the year on that available population of birds. So when you think about it in those terms, hopefully it's a more reasonable uh, combination of estimates of a 1.3 to 4 billion relative to anywhere between 10 and 40 billion or 50 billion birds that might be out there. And is that impactful still? Of course it is. It's horribly impactful. So the number of reptiles that are killed every year is somewhere in the, in the 100 million or so. Mammals, it's higher. It's like 15 billion. Uh, cats certainly prefer mammals. But... Given the situation, you know, cats are opportunistic predators. And so on island situations where there may be a higher abundance of, of lizards or in certain terrestrial, mainland situations where, where lizards or snakes might be more available and easier prey, um, they'll certainly kill those as well. They'll kill anything that moves for the most part. That's what they do. And another point I want to make is that, you know, cats are, they're, they're pests or pets depending upon the situations humans put them in. There's, there's no question about that. They are a domesticated species, and we have to remember that. So when we put them in these situations and they are having an impact on biodiversity, we're leaving them there and we're allowing it, and that's, that's on us.
4: Do we know much about uh, how cats might predate other animals in urban settings versus in rural settings or variations based on landscape like that?
1: Yeah, so I don't know of studies that separate, uh, landscape type, uh, and predation rates per se. But I will say that, you know, in some urban areas, certainly wildlife isn't as susceptible as in others. So it's not a constant issue, right? Some areas have endangered species or there are cat colonies along beaches where there might be piping plovers nesting. There's a greater risk there, no question about it. But I'll also say that in some urban settings, people would be surprised at how important those areas are for wildlife, um, in particular migratory birds uh, during stopover, during spring migration, or there could easily be a small lizard population, that a remnant population that remains in an urban area, um, depending upon where you are. Uh, many urban areas are, thankfully, more forested, and uh, in Washington, D.C., for example, and so you can have really important stopover areas being right in downtown D.C. And so we need to be careful where cats are placed, cat colonies are placed, or where, pe- where people let their cats out, even in urban, suburban settings, because those areas are, are can be really important for wildlife. So the title Cat Wars doesn't refer to the battle between Cats and wildlife. The the battle the cat wars title really refers to the battles that we've been having at multiple scales and across different groups. So when I've published papers on cats and other folks have come out with statements against cats, there is a gigantic and aggressive group of cat advocates out there and animal so called animal rights advocates that are, you know, very, very aggressive towards anything that might be saying cats don't belong in the landscape or might refer to the need for euthanasia of cats or to enclose cats. It's a very, very aggressive, uh, very, very vocal group. And there are wars there. There are battles that have ensued almost in every county, in every state, every town, every city. When you start looking at how these things are are growing and spreading across the U.S. and, and Canada, it's remarkable. And there's also battles that occur between people that, you know, live in neighborhoods uh, between individuals and their neighbors because individuals that own cats feel strongly that they should be able to let their cats out. And the fact of the matter is, is that that cat may be going into some other neighbor's yard where they are really trying to restore their habitat for nature, and that cat is killing things in their yard. But that individual next door feels strongly that that cat should be let out, and that town may not have leash laws, that town may not have any enforcement whatsoever, there's wars that are happening even between neighbors over the cat issue. We titled it Cat Wars, you know, mainly because we think it captures the current dilemma that we're in, which is a dilemma that we've been in for over 100 years, and we've known about the consequences of cats, yet we refuse to sort of dig our way out of this.
4: Um, what have you seen work in terms of ways to resolve um, uh, free-roaming cat problems with wildlife?
1: So nothing is working. There are. I wish I could point to success stories in the U.S., but I can't. There are. You know, maybe there's maybe one. Aurora, Colorado has a leash law that that has has some has some teeth. But um, there are no success stories in the U.S. Again, we've known about this for over 100 years. Yet the animal rights activists, the cat advocates, have really pushed this forward in a way that that it makes it. Very challenging for us now to say that it, it's not okay to have a cat colony in this in this area that's really important for for biodiversity, whether whether it's birds or skinks. And so now, you know, in our book, what we propose is that you know we're not going to get all cats off the landscape overnight. It's just impossible. Just not going to happen. But we we need to remove cats from areas where they are posing a risk to sensitive wildlife. That that has to be a zero tolerance policy. And then. Likewise, there are probably areas where they're not posing as much of a risk. And in those areas, we probably need to allow cat colonies to occur for at least until we we can demonstrate or or, or it is demonstrated that they are impacting wildlife or the colony is not going extinct. But in those areas where cat colonies persist, because these are invasive, non-native predators, if they're going to exist there, a wildlife professional needs to make the decision about where that colony goes. There needs to be a environmental impact assessment, literally. I mean, it really does. And after that happens, then the colonies need to be managed properly. They need to be counted properly in a statistically defensible way. They need to be monitored and captured and boosted, given booster vaccines so they're not continuing to spread diseases. And, it, let me, and on that point, it's also not just about wildlife impacts. The other side of this equation and the other point here which makes this even more disturbing to me is the impacts cats are having through the spread of Toxoplasma gondii directly into humans and children and also through the food that we eat. It's having a tremendous impact on the global population in ways that we're now just starting to understand. So going back to your, your point, for some people, we're never going to be able to convince them. Some cat advocacy groups, we're never going to be able to convince them that cats can't be on the landscape. It's going to be impossible, and it's going to be a top-down. It's going to require a top-down approach and a regulatory approach once we convince the decision makers. For other people that are more reasonable, my hope is, is that the book and other arguments will make them see the light that this, there is a problem here. And I think that the majority of people will see that. And I'm optimistic, honestly, despite the fact that we have very few wins, in part because there's precedent. We did it with dogs. In the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, dogs used to roam free all over the place. And certainly they do occasionally in certain parts of the U.S. But we learned our lessons from rabies, from dog attacks, from dogs getting hit by cars themselves. And we started to require leash laws. We started to require licensing. We started to require rabies vaccinations. And it took 10, 20, 30 years, but we got that under control. We need to start treating cats like dogs.
3: Cats are, in Philadelphia, they're actually exempted in the regulations.
1: And lots of cities have that exemption. It's just crazy. But the reason that exemption occurs is because of the really strong voice of cat advocacy groups. They've gotten it in there. And on the other side of the coin, bird advocacy groups, wildlife advocacy groups have not been as vocal. We don't have that many out there. We've got the American Bird Conservancy. We've got the Wildlife Society, PETA. But in a lot of these meetings that take place in different municipalities and in different places around the country, they are not represented as well. And so... The cat advocacy groups have pushed this agenda through and it's created a problem.
4: One of the things I found interesting, just observing, I know you can't necessarily speak for other organizations, but on the animal welfare slash animal rights side of the, of the table, you've got the Humane Society, which interestingly has, is the one that I see in other fields come out in favor of wildlife. Then you've got sort of PETA, which has its own reputation, but you've got them in opposite sides from what I would expect.
1: It's fascinating. It, it really is. You know, PETA comes out and says it is inhumane to put cats back out in the landscape. And frankly, it's, it's they're they're 100% correct. When you look at what happens to cats on the landscape, whether it's going, having them go through major surgery uh, through the sterilization process and putting them out within 12 hours of that surgery, no veterinarian worth their salt would would recommend that. But that's what happens. They'll often bleed to death, and then they're exposed to getting hit by cars, getting eaten by coyotes, disease. No, nobody, no organization should be calling that a humane treatment of an animal. It's just not. And that's where that's where PETA comes down on that. It is more humane, it is more caring, it is more thoughtful to actually euthanize an animal than to do that. The U.S. Humane Society is in complete contradiction with its own policies. They've got this wildlife group, and then they've got this policy on cats that makes no sense whatsoever. But the Humane Society has also gone into this no-kill realm, which unfortunately is the direction that many shelters have gone in across the United States, that has now resulted in enormous numbers of unintended consequences for wildlife and for, for domestic animals, companion animals.
4: Hey, could you flesh that out just a tiny bit because this
1: has come up in other discussions I've been having locally. That... Sure. So a no-kill shelter uh, basically will turn away animals once they've reached their saturation point. They're not going to keep accepting animals because they can't euthanize them. But because these shelters have limited resources, both in space and money, they can only take so many animals. And so when they tell somebody that's made the very difficult decision that they can no longer keep their cat or they can no longer keep their dog, those people are turned away and are facing another difficult decision. What are they going to do with their animal? They have no choice but to figure out what is the most what is the the thing that they can do if they see a colony out there where cats are being fed they're going to dump their animal, and that's what that's what we're seeing. People are dumping their animals because they've got no choice no kill shelters have you know that's just one of the unintended consequences they also They also probably have too many animals, and having too many animals also encourages various various diseases to emerge in dogs. it would be something like parvovirus
3: I noticed... um in the park that I work at, there's someone that finally got them to stop feeding on park property. I noticed that there's a red fox that I'll see come out the road at around the same time every day, and that's also the time that the person can to feed. So it seems pretty clear that this fox has been conditioned to know when there's going to be food around. Have you looked into the effect of, of these cat colonies feeding indirectly other wildlife?
1: Oh, yeah. it's It's a tremendous issue. In fact, in the book... Um, and one of the issues is rabies, of course, because there's this transfer of rabies from wildlife, especially like raccoons, into cats because they both go to these feeding stations. When people put out this food, the food, they're often just scattering the food out there. And even if they're putting it in bowls, it gets it gets dispersed. But it attracts things like fox and raccoons and a variety of things that also have rabies. And in Pennsylvania, in the book, we have a map of the rabies distribution in cats, Cats that have been picked up that have rabies, and it is, it, it's amazing. Every year in Pennsylvania, there are probably between, I don't know, 30 and 50 cases of rabid cats. It's just a matter of time before somebody is going to touch one of those, pick up one of those cats, it's going to be some sort of exchange of mucus, and n- n- someone's not going to know, and they're going to come down with rabies and they're going to die. Once you get rabies symptoms, you die. Every year, we also have people that are exposed to rabies from cats, but They figure it out and they have to go through post exposure prophylaxis, which is not, which is not inexpensive and it's not trivial.
3: One of the things that comes up, I'm a birder. Um, I mean, I consider myself, I mean, I, I I own a cat myself, so I think I should be viewed on both sides of this.
1: And I, and I like to
3: think that it's not even a side. Uh, you should just make sound decisions based on, you know, ecological principles and science. But people will say, well, you're biased because you're a birder and you, study birds professionally and since you do as well, how do you address that criticism to
1: people? So there's nothing wrong with cats. There's nothing wrong with owning cats. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we turn cats into pests or pets. The trick is, is you have to have an indoor cat. Letting your cat out the door and letting it roam around, that's that's just that's irresponsible pet ownership. But there are ways to get stimulation to your cat, which is what people want because Cats need stimulation. They do, just like any pet. With dogs, you know, I have a dog right now. I've owned cats in the past, but they've been indoor cats. And with my dog, I have to bring him to the park or bring him for long walks or throw the ball for him, make sure he gets exercise. He is stimulated. With cats, we can walk cats on leashes. In fact, we're seeing people walk cats on leashes more and more. You're not going to get an aerobic exercise, but the cat will get stimulated. We can build catios, these enclosures where cats will... Uh, be safe and wildlife will be safe, but they'll still get stimulated. There are ways that we can treat cats. So they are being fairly treated and wildlife is being fairly treated and the disease risk is lowered. And that's how we need to be thinking about things. Cats are just going to require a little more work than we once thought.
2: Exotic invasive.
0: So the one thing we didn't cover so much in that conversation is something that I want to have actually dedicated an entire episode to. So we'll get some folks to, to really go with the literature, because we've done this ourselves. You end up with these Facebook battles where people are like, well, trap-neuter release is better than alternatives. Um, the mantra seems to be that, like, oh, trapping and killing cats doesn't work. Um, so TNR does work. And so, the, so then they, what ends up happening is someone will – and they always seem to post to the same page. I think it's Alley Cat Allies. Um, a list of articles. I mean, I also just keep talking about it because the name is hilarious. So you argue with somebody, and you're like, here's
2: this, plus well, Pete Maris article often, you know, um, in Nature Communications, or like, all these articles, and like,
0: a lot of the, Not the only article. This is like, is part that, of a body of literature which tends to find right. the same thing. Yeah, yeah
2: and you, um, you post, you know, you're posting these like, peer-reviewed articles in like, conservation biology, or, you know, some other journal, you know, some highly reputable journal, and they're like, what about this? And you're like, it's allies or, like, someone's, like, blog post. One thing that's interesting that comes up fairly often is veterinarian journals. Of veterinary Right. You know, this
0: stuff tends to come out in veterinary journals. And what's – think about that is vets aren't research scientists.
2: So I'm curious – Well, they, if, they can be in certain fields. Right. I don't
0: want to say that. And almost all of the – They're is, not population biologists. Right. And almost
2: yeah. – they're not ecologists.
0: So veterinarian, they're obviously right. coming out from a bias – veterinarian is someone I would take my cat to if my cat were sick. I would not take my cat to a population biologist or an ecologist if my cat were sick. Similarly, if I want to learn about population dynamics of wild or feral animals, I'm going to go to the ecologist and the population biologist. We'll get into the specifics. I actually wanted an episode where we basically just go through the Alley Cat Allies literature page. Um because I've done this. In mean, one of Tony's Facebook debates, he got in a, you know, one of his Facebook wars with some cat people, and they post this page. And I'm like, alright, I'll look at it. Um can't get I couldn't get the full articles or some of the things, some of the things I had to deal with the abstracts. But still it didn't seem to apply. You have certain We're talking about this one argument I have with somebody. Yeah. And I said, I'm still waiting for
2: actual peer reviewed like papers on this topic. Um right? And like I think it was trying in response. Someone like reply with like a list, and 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 her thing is she'll often say she'll even bring it up in like future debates. She's a friend of mine, and she'll be like, "Don't bother debate Tony. He won't read the papers." And I'm like, "I didn't read the papers because you sent me a list like within like twenty minutes that you didn't curate because I by doing a Google by copying and pasting in the Google search, it came up that it was a alley cat allies list of a reference from like hours where. And the majority of the papers, just by me looking at the abstracts, were irrelevant to the topic. But I'll say,
0: I did read them. And so, yeah. and I'll talk about how they're irrelevant. Well, I just yeah. read the ones that were supposedly relevant, and those were garbage. The basics of the problem, in, let's take it in Philadelphia, are that a maintained colony, to shrink over time under the uh, TNR model, you have to spay the vast majority of the females in the population. New to the males, too, of course, but really the spaying is what really controls the population there. And then you have to limit recruitment. And recruitment's a term that you use in ecology to refer to new individuals coming into a population. Um, and that can be from babies that survive and then grow up. It can be from new animals coming in. And so the problem with the TNR models is that I don't know how the hell they limit recruitment. I mean, you have to either stop more people from dumping their cats or there every time someone dumps a cat to grab it and before it can join the population. And I'll, you know, own this as a, as a supposition, but the presence of these colonies sure seems to draw people in or draw cat owners in to dump their cats. Well, let me just say
2: this. I can speak to something similar. Yeah. Where when I worked at Collins Creek Environmental Center. Yeah. It wasn't even a cat colony where you fed cats. People dumped cats and dogs, monthly. And the next thing you know, there's like a box meowing outside on our driveway yeah. or a pit bull in a baby carriage because it can't walk because it's been starved. Oh, God. Or yeah. um, that was crazy. The, the animal control folks
0: who you imagine see stuff like that all the time, they almost cried. Pete Mara makes a great point. I think we're going to use it to open the episodes. you probably already heard, me, heard him say it twice by now, which is that cats are pets or pests, depending how humans treat them. This isn't about the cats. It's about humans owning our responsibility as the owners, as the supporters, um, as the companions, depending on your framework, um, for these animals. That we we can treat them with respect and dignity, keep them inside. We can, honestly, if they can't find a home and there's no good way to, no humane way to handle them, because throwing them outside to be hit by cars... Eaten by an owl, uh, whatever, um, is coyote. not humane. Whereas euthanasia is, um, yeah. And
2: let's t- I want to uh, talk about that. There's like these two prevailing things that you keep hearing is like that euthanasia is cruel, and the other thing is kind of like, well, is just nature playing it out, or like, how dare we like put value on one animal over another if we just like let it take its course. Uh, I'll we'll address that in a minute. But the- when it comes to euthanasia, if it's an animal rights issue, what you're dealing with is whether or not. It's cruel to kill animals. Then what I don't understand is when you euthanize a cat or you kill a cat, whatever you want to say it, right? Whether you shoot it in a field, right, or which I think is, or put
0: it down with
2: uh, right. uh, anesthetic. I'm, yeah. I, I, honestly, I'm fine in, in big areas if they if they just use a rifle, or whatever, because man arrows are intensive. And so
0: anyway, if you kill a cat, it stops killing. Right. You save the birds, you save the snakes, you save the mice, also the voles. The other Chip thing monks. is,
2: you save the domestic animals that you kill to feed it, and you also save the chickens, the fish, the fish, and krill or whatever that you're catching in the wild, right? With, with yeah. not only killing down bycatch, yeah, right, or you're raising them in fish farms, which and you're feeding them wild caught, own so ugly, fe- you're, ugly you're industry. You're feeding the, the tilapia wild caught fish in the first place, so you're killing all these other animals either you let letting get killed in the field. You're killing other animals to subsidize it while it's in the field. Or you adopt it, get adopted, and you're killing other animals to feed it. So you're killing way more animals by letting this cat
0: live. There is no no-kill
2: option. in the, yeah, yeah, in the field or adopt it. You're killing way more animals no matter what. So I don't understand that. And the other thing is the, the idea is, like, why do humans think you have the right to, like, manage animals and just let, need to take its course? Well, they're pollution. They're an entity from somewhere else that... Is somewhere it shouldn't be, and it's causing harm
0: to environment. Thanks to human action, we have a responsibility to deal with that. This isn't like we're managing red-tail hawks eating squirrels or gray foxes. Be careful there, not to say red foxes. We'll say gray foxes killing native snakes and frogs. That's stuff that would be happening in this space, whether humans here were here or those, Europeans were here or not, and the
2: animals here in, in areas of cats weren't previously, right? They. Evolved to deal with the suite of predators that co co-evolve with them. They didn't evolve to evade cats.
0: So and cats have and em- certainly not cats at the population densities that we provide. Right. That are yeah. subsidized. We could go on forever, and I think we will. I think like sort of the next steps in this um, as a podcast are. I do want to do that sort of like review of the literature to to sort of put to rest these questions of like TNR working. It doesn't. I have been moved. To start trying to organize a little bit about this, and so if you I hear can't
2: this, because I, I work for the park system, I got I got yeah.
0: to just let you know I got to. You can respond to the park situations with the park right, policy would, tools that exist, yeah. but I'm I'm not. So I'm sort of trying to pull people together to talk about the, the naturalist, the conservationist, the urban wildlife enthusiast, the public health response to feral cat colonies, and maybe that doesn't mean we ban TNR completely as much as that would make me happy. Maybe that means that we just, we we accept what we can work with. And it's a question of moving the maintained colonies or the the condos, the feeding away from particularly sensitive areas. So that if you've got, let's say um, on the Delaware waterfront, you've got some park where there's a lot of birds stopping over migration. Can we move the colonies and the care a couple blocks away from the waterfront? Something like that. I think those are the kind of solutions that we're that I'm think that I would love to see. Is it in a park? Okay, can we move it a few blocks away from the park? Those kind of things can you know can take them out of the natural areas or the areas that sustain wild animals that are particularly vulnerable to the cats. Put the cats. In the back of a strip mall or something instead, you know, and keep them away from the migrating warblers, the five-line skinks in their one little tiny population in Philadelphia, all the interesting wild mammals we might have in our wooded stream corridor parks. Um, Keep the cats places where they're not going to do the damage. And frankly, let the TNR people do their thing.
2: The other thing that we need to talk about is address the notion that there's like Two sides that, like, we're bird people, right?
0: We tackled that at the beginning. You are a cat person and a bird person. Right.
2: right. But what I mean by that is talking about how when they're reintroducing piping clovers, right, to Barry Islands. Yeah. Sometimes they do things like kill great horned owls that live there. Yeah. Right? Or the Kirtland's warbler we talked about earlier, they kill the youth the or kill whatever brown-headed cowbirds because they're parasizing their nests and involve yeah. them.
0: Okay, you have to make records. some unfortunate trade-offs in
2: these situations. Yes, yeah. and there's, there's trade-offs. And, and the goal is to preserve the overall biodiversity of the
0: world. And, and in our cities, too. Yeah. This is part of what we do in this podcast. We don't want to give up on cities um, as spaces for biodiversity. If you were listening to this podcast, you were a fan of urban biodiversity – and if you are a fan of urban biodiversity, then it is really hard to be that fan of urban biodiversity and also be a fan of outdoor cats, whether that's outdoor pet cats, whether that's feral cats, dumped cats, you name it. If We want people living in cities to have this rich experience of biodiversity that we actually can have, we actually indeed can have in cities, and um, which is what we love and what we want to share. You can't have that and also have tons of outdoor cats. This is what moves us to get so involved in this. I'm just going to wind up repeating information about um, Pete Mara. So Pete Mara, again, co-author of Cat Wars, uh, is going to be talking on Thursday, February 23rd at 6.30 p.m. at the the Academy Town Square Series. Um, This is at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. Um, This is in Center City, Philadelphia, central to everything, right by the Parkway. Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Well.
2: Also, um, we need to
4: get a We need send our love and solidarity for you. We
2: need have a, um, to a chef and <laughs> Symex.
0: They saw the signs but they just couldn't do it.